straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki. In today's episode, I have Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth and Jordan Stefaniak on to talk about their new paper on Craig Carter, Classical Theism, and Creation Ex Nihilo. They examine Carter's claims against non-classical models of God and argue that Carter has not been able to justify his own claims. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many different ways. I really appreciate all the support that everybody's been giving me so far. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear in the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here is Andrew, Jordan, and I chatting about classical theism, creationix nihilo, and so much more. Enjoy. All right, so as you can probably tell from the sound of my voice, I have a cold. I am in the city of brotherly love, and people gave me too much love, and now I've got a Pennsylvania pneumonia. I got a Philly flu. I was down by the docks, and I was like kissing some Philly floozies, and now I talk like your grandmother who's been smoking too much. So I've got today, I have with me two other Philly floozies that I met on the dock. I have got Andrew Hollingsworth and Jordan Stefaniak. Could you guys just introduce yourselves so people can get used to your voice? Hi, I'm Andrew Hollingsworth. Uh... I do a lot of different things. Um, I adjunct professor in theology and philosophy for several institutions, Bruton Parker College, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, Delgado Community College, and uh, in summer 2022, London School of Theology. And I also do some instructional design work, and um, that's pretty much it. There we go. Awesome. Well, I'm Jordan Stefaniak. I don't know how many of you guys listening know who I am, so I'll lead with the stuff that you would probably know me for which is I'm a business intelligence analyst in the financial sector. Um, no, I'm kidding. I actually do do that, but that's definitely not what you know me for. So I, I do a lot of theology and philosophy. I'm a PhD student at the University of Birmingham in the UK, not in Alabama, which if I talk to somebody in the States, they always think it's Alabama for some reason. So I always have to say, no, it's in the UK. Yeah. Studying philosophy. I mean, I guess philosophy of mind, philosophy of religion primarily. I'm also a research fellow for the Center of Faith and Culture at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I am, I do pretty much everything for what's the London Lyceum, which is a podcast and online center. And, and we have starting a journal on analytic Baptist and confessional theology. So it's a nice mix. Uh, not often do you see confessional reform sort of Baptist guys wanting to do analytic theology, but that's what we try to do. So it's lots of fun. Nice, nice. So yeah, at any point today, if I just start like hacking up a lung and I can't ask the questions, Jordan's just going to take over. There'll be this drum beat that'll start going. It'll be like on a very special <laughs> episode of the London Lyceum, Ryan Mullins dies. So yeah. So let's 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 get into this now. I don't want to be one of those shows that has like twenty minutes of fake witty banter before they get to the interview. So I want to I want to I want to do it. So so Craig Carter, uh, he wrote this um, shall we say very provocative piece for Credo Magazine a, a while back. And so Jordan, like I went on your show, uh, the London Lyceum, because I wanted to like kind of rant about it a bit. And then Carter did something that I guess you could call like a response episode. So now you guys, though, you decided you're going to like not just leave it there. You're going to write an actual paper on this whole thing. So like, what is this dramatic claim from Craig Carter that you guys are critiquing in your paper? Yeah. So in several of his recent publications, like you mentioned, um, but namely in his books, Interpreting Scripture with a Great Tradition and his newer book, Contemplating God with a Great Tradition, 
as well as those Credo Magazine articles. Uh, Carter issues several arguments for why Christians should pursue a renaissance of Trinitarian classical theism. And so making these arguments, Carter has made the argument, rather the assertion, that only classical theism affirms the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. More specifically, he argues that only classical theism affords God the necessary and sufficient transcendence needed to create ex nihilo, and all other models of God, which he lumps together under the moniker relational theism, deny the transcendence of God and are incapable of consistently affirming the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Uh, This is a very interesting and unique argument in the history of both theology and the philosophy of religion. Uh, I've honestly never come across it anywhere else. Despite its interesting and unique claims, however, Jordan and I find several errors that Carter makes in building his case. Uh, Not only can we each name many relational theists who explicitly affirm both that God is transcendent and that he creates ex nihilo off the top of our heads, we also find errors both in Carter's overall argument form and premises, as well as in his assertions that all versions of relational theism implicitly deny creation ex nihilo in that they deny God the necessary and sufficient transcendence for creation ex nihilo. So I guess in summary, it's this unique argument of Carter's that only classical theism can consistently affirm creation ex nihilo that we are critical of. Yeah, and and Ryan, I'll tell you, just recently, I mean, I don't know when this airs, but December 7th even, he had another Credo Magazine article come out where he says there can be no transcendence without classical theism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, I mean, for me, I'm a classical theist, so... I'm supposed to like this, but I, I I don't like bad arguments. I don't like arguments that attribute false things to other people. So I it, it makes me angry. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I saw the I saw the headline on that one, and I was like, I think I'll pass. I think I'll pass. It's okay. <laughs> uh, that's one thing that we thought gave this paper actually a little bit of appeal is the two of us writing it together. Jordan mm-hmm. is a classical theist. I, I'd be what what I'm going to call a neoclassical theist in this paper. But again, you know, as, as Jordan and I have talked a lot about, you know, we care a lot more about the pursuit of truth than upholding some form of tribalism. Or- right. Yeah, it's, it's always nice when people can come together and, you know, and be like, look, we, we have disagreements on God and we can, we can get along. Isn't that nice? You know? <laughs> so, so you guys have mentioned some different terms here. Uh, and so this, we need to sit down and actually like, define some of these things. So let's start with this phrase, Trinitarian classical theism. Like what, is, what does Carter mean by this term? Yeah, so Carter develops 25 theses wherein he defines and explains what Trinitarian classical theism is, um, but it's not necessary to work through all those uh, in this episode. Uh, essentially, Trinitarian classical theism is classical theism that also affirms the pro-Nicene doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which is enshrined by the Church's seven ecumenical councils. Really, it's Carter's way of specifying a specifically Christian classical theism, since classical theism is technically also affirmed by Jewish, Muslim, and other religious philosophers and theologians, such as Pl- both Plato and Aristotle. Uh, classical theism has typically been understood as a model of God that affirms that God is necessary, enjoys aseity, is immense, quote-unquote, has the attributes of omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, and perfect rationality, is eternal, creates ex nihilo, and is morally perfect. However, other models of God, such as neoclassical theism, or what others like John Peckham call modified classical theism, affirm all of these attributes as well. So it sets classical theism apart from these other models of God, or these distinctive attributes of simplicity, immutability, impassibility, and atemporal, and an atemporal understanding of God's eternity. Now, this model of God has been the majority view of the greater part of the Christian tradition, 
though it had its detractors here and there, it remained the majority view amongst Christians up until the Enlightenment, which is when it began to come under serious scrutiny and criticism. Other models of God, such as pantheism, panentheism, deism, and process theism, have been offered in its place since the Enlightenment. Uh, however, classical theism has probably remained the dominant view up until this day. I think it has at least. It's also the model of God in view in the 39 Articles of Religion, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Articles of Religion, and many other confessions of faith. Uh, major thinkers who have affirmed this view uh, include Augustine, Boethius, John of Damascus, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Francis Turretin, and Herman Bovink. Really, the vast majority of the patristics, medieval scholastics, Reformation thinkers, and post-Reformation thinkers affirm classical theism. And this is the model of God that Carter seems to have in mind with his term, Trinitarian classical theism. Uh, but hereafter, we'll just simply call it classical theism. Nice. So there's this other term that Carter uses quite a bit, which is relational theism. So what does Carter mean by relational theism? Yeah, Whatever he uh, doesn't believe. No, I'm just Whatever he doesn't believe. <laughs> <laughs> All those views I reject. <laughs> yeah, so as, I, as I briefly mentioned earlier, relational theism is Carter's umbrella term for any model of God that is not classical theism. Uh, more specifically, Carter views any model of God that would claim that God enjoys a real relationship with creation as some version of relational theism. Uh, now, Jordan's going to explain more later what is meant by real relationship. He's, he's more of the expert on that than I am. Um, but all species of relational theism affirm that God exists in such a relationship with creation that both A, God acts on creation, and B, that creation acts on God, according to Carter. Uh, examples that he gives of relational theism are theistic personalism, theistic mutualism, open theism, panentheism, pantheism, process theism, and ecofeminism, uh, though I'm not really sure in what way that last one's a model of God. Um, most of these Carter either does not define or he defines them very vaguely and poorly. Uh, for example, there's no real material difference between his definitions of theistic personalism and theistic mutualism. Those definitions are simply interchangeable almost in his book. I'm still not really sure what exactly Carter or most theologians for that matter mean by specifically the terms theistic personalism and theistic mutualism, uh, but they are without question species of this relational theism. I know Brian Davies gave us some sort of popular definition in his Intro to Philosophy of Religion years back of uh, it's, a, it's a model of God that would view God as another being in the cosmos, only greater than the rest of creation in degree. And it's actually a fairly pejorative term. I'm not a big fan of it. Plus, it's very vague. Uh, Carter takes up this ter these terms a lot, and he uses that definition several times um, throughout his book and his uh, pieces he's written. Uh, in summary, any model of God that would deny one or more of the four distinguishing attributes of classical theism would fall under this genus of relational theism. Every version of relational theism, since it denies at least one of these four attributes, uh, ultimately denies God's transcendence and thus denies creation ex nihilo. Uh, in Carter's own words, all forms of relational theism from process theology to dynamic panentheism to open theism to theistic personalism to ecofeminism all deny creation ex nihilo. Right. That's a, that's a very strong claim. So the ecofeminist, I can actually I, I, uh, say a little bit about that. Um, so a lot of the ecofeminists that I'm aware of who do stuff on models of God, they typically say they affirm a panentheistic model of God, that ecofeminism just pushes them there. Uh, so 
don't know why you'd want to like separate them out as like be like panentheist and ecofeminist who just are panentheist and then process theist. Of course, process theist is the same thing. They're all they're all saying, yeah, we're a bunch of panentheists. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. But they've got like more thicker claims than, than just that model of God because they've got this whole process metaphysics. Of course, the same thing is going on with ecofeminism. They're not just like this model of God. They're like, I've got a whole set of philosophical theological claims I want to do. So let's get into this next question here. Uh, so, so like we said earlier, so like, so Carter, he thinks that only classical theism can affirm this doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that great and glorious doctrine. And classical theism is the only bastion of hope that we can have to affirm this doctrine. So why does Carter think that? You know, that's a fantastic question. And I've had him on my show to discuss this. And I asked him this question because as a classical theist, I would love it if I had a knockdown argument for this, because I think most Christians want to affirm creation ex nihilo. They think that that is a fundamental foundational doctrine. So if I could have a clear way of saying, well, look, you got classical theism from this, I'd be like, well, that's awesome. That's a trump card for me. But when you look at Carter's claim, I think that's pretty much all you get is a claim. Andrew read it. All forms of relational theism and so on, they all deny creation ex nihilo. That's legitimately it. So I, I have no idea why he makes this claim. So what we've had to do in our paper and, and thinking through it is do a huge amount of model building on his behalf because he does what I feel like most theologians end up doing is you may make an assertion and you don't provide an argument for why that assertion is true, the bane of my existence. But we had to do the work for him, and I, I think it's good. So it, it's both fun and dangerous doing this because fun because, well, it, it can make the debate clearer. It can make it more helpful. It can elucidate a lot of the, the problems. It can sharpen what was going on and help us to get at the actual the real debate. But it's also dangerous because as you're doing this, who knows if Carter would say that he agrees with everything that we were trying to attribute to him. But I feel pretty confident that he would agree with how we end up laying things out but he would end up either disagreeing with how we get to the conclusion or something. I'm not totally sure. I, I'll be interested to see if he ends up replying because, I mean, I'm a classical theist. I, I run in a lot of the same tribes as Craig. I think if Craig was like, yep, you know what? I was wrong. I'd be like, cool. We're friends. Let's go. Let's go hang out. Um, but I, I don't know if that'll happen. It'll be interesting. So, I mean, and I'm an academic. I, I feel like you should be able to push each other and say, mm -hmm. I think you're wrong and still go hang out afterwards. So all that oh, to yeah. say, based on, based on my reading of Carter, I think the reason for this sort of extraordinary claim is just because of a heap of assumptions on Carter's part that turn on his understanding of divine transcendence. So I think he's saying this, that classical theism is the only way to do this because classical theism is the only one that affirms a certain version of divine transcendence that he's trying to extrapolate from Isaiah 40 to 48. So if you read his recent book, what is it? Contemplating God with the great tradition. The middle section of that book is dedicated to biblical exegesis of Isaiah 40 to 48, which, you know, it's great. Biblical exegesis is awesome, but he's trying to take from that a, I think a far more robust understand or different understanding of transcendence that then has been, I guess, cast out in the tradition at least, or is foundational for creation ex nihilo. So we could talk a little bit more about that, but I think that's the reason that he's getting there. Mm -hmm. It's a transcendence. So this enlightenment term transcendence is what's doing a lot of the work, which I, I guess I find a bit ironic that, that someone like Carter is going to rely so heavily on this enlightenment term, because it's, it's almost as if 
one is being beholden to enlightenment thinking but uh but but i guess i'll i'll digress on that um so what is what does carter mean by transcendence well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head first that it's, it is ironic. Uh, but anyway, so Carter, I think he defines transcendence in his book, his recent one. He says this, it means that God is not a being within the universe, but is sovereign, is the sovereign Lord of all that exists. And elsewhere, he also says similarly, a transcendent creator rules out the possibility of any sort of pantheism, panentheism, theistic personalism, theistic mutualism, because all of these doctrines view the divine as part of the cosmos rather than before and above the cosmos. So from these claims themselves, I think divine transcendence ends up meaning nothing more than God's not part of the universe. So he's Ase and he's creator ex nihilo. Obviously, we, we could quibble quite a bit with his claim that I think theistic personalism and theistic mutualism view God as part of the universe. I don't, I don't think that's true. But anyway, we can let's work a little bit more on transcendence. So Carter's claim against non-classical theism, if that's going to work because of transcendence, I think he needs a more robust understanding of transcendence than what he's putting forth here. Because what he says, at least in his book, is just God's sovereign, God's not part of the universe. And that doesn't get me to saying relational theism denies creation next to Hillel. So how in the world do I get there from this definition of transcendence? From this minimal one, I don't see how it gets there. I think he needs a bigger claim than just God is Asse, than just God is creator ex nihilo. I think he needs to add in a strong doctrine of divine simplicity. And I think that's crucial to his argument, at least, because I think the ultimate reason he ends up going this route is because he thinks classical theism affirms divine simplicity. Other models don't. And then it ends up turning on because he thinks real relations in God between creation and God would deny his transcendence because it would deny his simplicity. And I think that's where he's getting there with transcendence. So I think he's, even though the way he defines it doesn't include simplicity, I think mm-hmm. through the back door, he brings it in. Yeah. In my experience, like when I read through a lot of like standard textbooks in systematic theology, I'm always looking for these definitions of transcendence and transcendence is almost always well, it just happens to be my model of God. And I'm like, oh, I see. Okay. So it's almost always this question-begging term. But I, this definition you gave here, I want to st- pause on this for a second. So it's so God is not a being within the universe, but is the sovereign Lord of all that exists. Well, so if, if the incarnation is true, God is a human being in the universe. So this seems like transcendence would rule out the incarnation on, on this one, which we don't well, need to go into, but, um, but yeah. I just, I just kind of noticed that. Wouldn't he, I would think he would say, well, look, the, the incarnation is the, the human nature is part of part of the universe, not, not the divine nature. Yeah. So, okay. So, so he's, he's, he's one person in the universe amongst other persons. <laughs> no, he's not a being in the universe. So that's okay. Okay. So that's, that's the way we look, look a lot of it. I, I, also, I mean, I think fundamentally he's just trying to say God is I say, and he's creator yeah. eggs and hello. He's not trying to work through like, the the complexities of the incarnation yeah. so i mean he would affirm the incarnation obviously yeah of course yeah no yeah there's no doubt about that but yeah yeah i think if it's just all and and god's got the freedom to go i don't want to create stuff if i don't want to then yeah then you guys are gonna well we'll go into those arguments later but you'd be like well every, a lot of people can say that um so so yeah so okay so let's so we got this enlightenment term transcendence and then now you threw in this medieval uh phrase about like mixed relations and everything so let's let's go medieval for a bit here so you've got this medieval philosophical notions of like real relations, mixed relations, 
yeah, you know, tell me what these terms mean and then kind of get explain why they're relevant for this debate. Yeah, I think this is good because a lot of times, at least classical theists, if, in my experience, use these terms, but oftentimes they, I think if I press them and say, hey, what do you mean by that? I'd get a blank stare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just because there's a long tradition of using these terms and saying, well, God doesn't have a real relation. You just, you, you repeat those things because, well, that's what the tradition has said. Yeah. And I think that that's a fine starting point, but you, you got to know what you're talking about if you're going to make assertions that other models of God can't affirm things like creation, ex nihilo. You got, you got to be a little bit more specific than that. So I think if I walk down the street and ask somebody, hey, what's a real relation? They're not going to talk about what we're talking about here. No. Uh, it's going to be very different. So when we're talking about real relations, mixed relations, all logical relations, we're talking about metaphysics. So in the history of, I guess, thought, real relations and mixed relations are more like a term of art uh, compared to what the contemporary meanings are. So I think Carter's argument hinges to a significant extent on what's meant by the medieval understanding of relations. So I'll give you two two kind of models of real relations. The first one's kind of a, a contemporary real relation, I think. So if you read contemporary stuff on uh, metaphysics of relations, I think you're going to see when people talk about real relations, they mean this, which is a relation R of A to B is real for A, if and only if, number one, A is related by R to B, and two, A and B are not identical extramental things. So all that's saying, I think, is just there's two objects that exist, and they are related by a relation. So that relation doesn't have to have any metaphysical changes or meaning or anything beyond just, it could be just a purely conceptual thing. And it's a real relation for a significant amount of thinkers. But that's not how Carter, I think, is using it. I think he's using it in this more heavyweight sense where he's going to add a third condition, which is typical in the tradition, which would say, so the relation is real if and only if those first two things, they're related by this relation are. They're not identical extramental things. And third, there is an extramental foundation in A for R. So it's that in, that intrinsic extramental foundation in that first object that grounds the relations obtaining between the two things. So I think on this robust and more widespread distinction in the tradition, uh, the definition of a real relation here would end up meaning that if God had a relation to creation that was real, it would mean he changed, it would deny his simplicity, and all those things. So I, I think that's view of real relations is pretty contested in the contemporary literature. But if you want to go medieval Thomistic, that, that's pretty much the standard way to think about a real relation. So then he has these mixed relations, at least in Thomas and others, where one object can have a real relation and the other can have one that's not real. So God can have a non-real relation to creation. He can be creator and yet not have a real relation because he doesn't have this intrinsic feature. It's just the created object itself that has the real relation. So there's kind of like a one way is real, the other way isn't. But I think that's important to note these sort of terminological distinctions because it's a linchpin for how Carter is going about his argument because he's assuming this really robust understanding of real relations to make his argument work. Yeah, maybe we should give an example for people. So when you're looking at like Augustine, when Augustine's wanting to adopt this account of know your relations or these mixed relations, some of the examples he gives, he's like, okay, so consider a real relationship between like a father and a son uh, or a master and a servant. 
the master and servant one's very popular in this time period. Uh, and so the master and servant are really related because each of them has some sort of like intrinsic feature, like a property that points towards the other person. And then the mixed relation would be uh, Augustine thinking about Socrates. Because apparently if I'm thinking about Socrates, then like I'm really related to Socrates. I've got some sort of property that points towards him. But Socrates, he's just not really into me. Uh, so he doesn't have a property that's like kind of points back towards me. And, and so when you're saying God's not really related to the universe, it's supposed to be something like that. God doesn't have some sort of extra mental feature that points towards the universe like I do when I think about Socrates. Yeah, so I think Thomas uses the illustration of like the statue and the animal. So the statues, now obviously you don't want to say God's a statue, but just for the sake of example, if you have a statue that's located somewhere and you have an animal that's moving from left to right, the animal actually intrinsically does have this relation that's different. But the statue never moved. While it does have a different relation, it was the animal was to the right, now it's to the left. It, it's nothing that would metaphysically, intrinsically change the statue. So I think that's the sort of idea that's going on behind it. Mm-hmm. Good. So I think at this point, we've got all the pieces we need to kind of formalize Carter's argument for him. So what is this formalized argument, uh, version of the argument? And like, so what, and what do you make of this argument? Yeah, so I think it's important to, to go through two steps in, in this and. In the paper, I'll, I'll whet your appetite. We, we try to work through this in several steps. So we, I sketch out like, hey, here's what I think he's trying to say from what he's put in, in his book and other writings, but there are missing premises. So let me expand this and add some extra things for him because I think that'll help clarify where what he's saying and where we think it's going wrong. So I think the, the first claim he's going to make is if God, if God is simple, I say, and creates ex nihilo, then he is maximally transcendent. So for God to be transcendent, he's got to do these things. And then he's obviously affirms God is simple, I say, and creates ex nihilo. Therefore, God is maximally transcendent. So from this, then he goes, if God is maximally transcendent, then God cannot stand in these sort of heavyweight real relations to creation. Therefore, God cannot stand in real relations to creation from the, the beginning of this, the first couple of premises. Now, it, this is where I think he gets to the claim that relational theism is false. He says, if relational theism is true, then God must stand in these sort of real relations to creation. Therefore, relational theism is, is false. Now, the reason this argument works is because divine simplicity precludes this heavyweight understanding of real relations. So I think the argument, as you can see here, rests on divine simplicity and not creation ex nihilo. So creation ex nihilo by itself it doesn't require uh, real real relations or in any type of way. You could be contemporary or you could be medieval. It doesn't matter. For God to exist as creator ex nihilo, he, he can have them. He doesn't have to have them. So I think the reason we, we draw this out is to show that as he's trying to, to show that relational theism is false and we're talking about creation ex nihilo, all the stuff that's doing all the work for him isn't creation ex nihilo. It's divine simplicity. So we take it that Carter's claim that relational theists, all of them, ecofeminism included, deny creation ex nihilo doesn't mean that all of them outright reject creation ex nihilo. So I think you look at Thomas Ord, obviously he rejects it outright. Now, we show William Lake Craig, Richard Swinburne, others, they clearly affirm it. So I think what he's trying to say is that most of them implicitly reject creation ex nihilo because of his understanding of divine transcendence which requires divine simplicity and real relations in his sense to be denied of God. So I think his reasoning ends up going like this. First, creation ex nihilo is a necessary condition for divine transcendence. Okay, 
I think most people, most most traditional, vaguely orthodox Christians are going to say, yeah, I'm good with that. Two, relational theism denies divine transcendence because it affirms these metaphysically heavyweight real relations in God. Therefore, relational theism denies creation ex nihilo. Obviously, I think this is both unsound and invalid. So I think premise two is just false. So relational theism denies divine transcendence because it affirms metaphysically heavyweight relations in God. You've got to explain to me what do you mean by divine transcendence. If I go by your definition, Craig, the one you put in your book, this doesn't work. So I think just from that perspective, that it, that's, it's false. But I think the conclusion also doesn't follow. So I think most relational theists are going to say, yeah, this, this argument doesn't work. So I think personally, I mean, I'm a classical theist. I want the best arguments. I think everybody wants the best arguments, the right arguments. And I just don't think this one's persuasive in any way. But so we, me and Andrew spent who knows how long talking about it and working through it and saying like, this argument's just wild. Like, mm-hmm. why would you think that that's, that's true or that's the case? I don't get it. It, it, it is a lot because I, I well I mean that's why I went on your show that one time because I was just like where are you getting this from like uh it's 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 really obvious um so but uh, let's make it obvious for the audience here so so in your paper you guys claim that like other models of God they are in fact compatible with the doctrine of creation ex nihilo so what kind of models of God do you have in mind here yeah so we actually think a couple of versions of what Carter's calling relational theism are logically consistent with the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Uh, in the paper, we defend that both neoclassical theism and open theism are compatible um, with it. By neoclassical theism, we just simply mean a model of God that affirms the following divine attributes. Necessity, aseity, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, perfect rationality, eternity, and moral perfection. However, neoclassical theism is going to deny at least one, if not all four, of the distinctively classical theist attributes. Um, by open theism, we simply mean a model of God that affirms that God is necessary, exists, I say, is omnipotent and omniscient in a uniquely qualified sense, namely a sense in which God does not or cannot know the future in a world that contains libertarian free creatures, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, perfect rationality, eternity, and moral perfection. Now, when we say that both are logically consistent with creation ex nihilo, uh, we just simply mean that there's no logical incoherence uh, implied when we state God creates ex nihilo insofar that the term God is understood in a neoclassical or open theist sense. Uh, So we do not argue that the neoclassical or the open theist stories about God are true. Uh, We're only arguing that they're just logically consistent with the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Uh, And as a result, we also argue that neither of these models deny God the transcendence required for creation ex nihilo. Mm-hmm. So I think the definition of open theism you just gave, open theists themselves are going to be happy with that because you said all the things they explicitly say. Um, but I want to disagree. You forgot to point out that on open theism, God's a creature. Uh, he's a man made in my own image. <laughs> like you. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. If Alan wrote is listening, like, you know, I'm going to insist like Alan, you, you, I know you affirm that God is a creature. That's just like you. <laughs> well, um, is, is, uh, one thing Jordan and I also wanted to emulate in this paper is this uh, this Christian principle of charity. So that's why we don't include such such aspects of the definition. So fine. I mean, I guess you know. Uh, <laughs> what, what's that old Augustinian saying? Like, uh, uh, like in the essentials, unity, and uh, in, in non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. So you're just trying to trying to be charitable, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm told frequently that I don't understand Augustine, even though I give plenty of quotations from Augustine 
And Thomas Aquinas too. Apparently, I don't understand either. Of but them. you don't. Well, no one understands the Demox, so it's, it's it's okay. It's okay. So we got so we got so we got these uh, neoclassical, and we got the open theist. Uh, let's start with the neoclassical model of God. So how does how how is neoclassical theism compatible with the doctrine of creation ex nihilo? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so this is so you know this is going to be a little bit of a longer answer. It's actually the longest section in our paper because it's where we have to. We build in a lot of stuff into this that can easily translate over to the open theist model. Um, mm-hmm. So now as we've been discussing, the one thing that is crystal clear from Carter is that all forms of relational theism deny creation ex nihilo. And that the reason for this is that all these relational theist models deny God the necessary and sufficient transcendence to create ex nihilo. Now, by denying the compatibility of creation ex nihilo with all forms of relational theism, Carter's making a universal negation as opposed to just an existential one. Uh, so if there is at least one version of relational theism that could affirm creation ex nihilo in a logically consistent way, then Carter's claim is going to be false. Uh, now, however, we obviously think that it just helps bolster the argument to show that, hey, there's at least two that can do it. So even though we only need one, we, we try to uh, you know go an extra mile with our, uh, with our, our Roman centurion friend. Uh, so first, it's worth noting that, uh, as we've said a lot, many, if not most, neoclassical theists are going to explicitly affirm creation ex nihilo. Uh, for example, William Lane Craig and Paul Copan have actually written a book-length treatment of creation ex nihilo, defending the doctrine on biblical, philosophical, and scientific grounds, and they would both ascribe to some version of this neoclassical theism. So if neoclassical theism is logically consistent with creation ex nihilo, then these two gentlemen have missed the memo. So not only this, but Craig in particular notes how essential the doctrine is in his defenses of the Kalam cosmological argument. But according to Carter, by denying God the attributes of simplicity, immutability, impassibility, or atemporal eternity, Craig is going to implicitly deny that God has these necessary and sufficient transcendence to create ex nihilo. Craig, however, would strongly disagree with this. He, he discusses throughout his many works in many places the importance of God's transcendence, and nowhere does he ever imply that God is simply another being in the cosmos like us creatures, only greater in degree. Uh, all this comes back to what Jordan was just talking about earlier, though, namely how we understand divine transcendence. As Jordan noted and argued, Carter seems to want to affirm this maximal understanding of transcendence, one that requires what seems to be a Thomistic doctrine of divine simplicity, or DDS. Uh, I say Thomistic doctrines because... I'm well aware that throughout the classical tradition, many disagree on is there just one doctrine or are there multiple articulations. I don't really want to step in that, so I'm just I'm qualifying with Thomistic because that seems to be what Carter has offered. Uh, right, uh, I think that's safe. That's safe yeah. move. So, but I'm, but either way, I'm just going to say DDS going forward. So, by saying that God's transcendent, classical theists typically mean that God is altogether unlike His creatures. Uh, they will normally say things like God's completely other from the created universe. However, most of them do not explain what exactly it is about God that makes him transcendent, though some like Augustine and Thomas do explicitly say, well, it's his simplicity. We argue in the paper, though, that the attribute that does seem to be the basis or the best basis of God's transcendence is his aseity, that he does not depend on anything outside of himself for his existence, sustained existence, or his essential properties. Uh, God's completely self-existent and self-sufficient for his being. Not only this, but Christian theologians typically also want to argue that God alone enjoys a seity. Anything that is not God does not exist, I say, and exists contingently on God. Uh, both Carter and William Lane Craig would explicitly affirm this. 
As a matter of fact, William Lane Craig has written two monographs defending God's aseity from what he terms the challenge of Platonism. He does this in his God and Abstract Objects and God Overall. But if Craig explicitly affirms God's aseity and even defends it, then why would Carter claim something like he implicitly denies transcendence of God? The reason is what we mentioned earlier, namely the DDS. According to Carter and others who think along these same lines, in order to exist, I say God must be absolutely simple. Otherwise, he would be dependent on his parts, such as his properties, for his being in existence. Since God depends on nothing for his being in existence, he therefore must be absolutely simple. And therefore, in order to affirm creation ex nihilo, we must also affirm the DDS as well. Now, Jordan and I take issue with this claim, though Jordan's going to be more sympathetic to it than I am. It is not obvious to us or many philosophers and theologians that God must be simple in this way in order to exist, I say. Uh, we look specifically at the work of Gregory Fowler and Matthew Badorf to help substantiate this argument. Uh, Fowler and Badorf both note that though many classical theists will make such claims as if God is complex or composite, then he depends on his parts for his being and existence. But many classical theists never explain what sort of dependence relation they have in mind when they make this claim that God depends on his parts. Uh, Fowler is helpful here. He lists four types of dependence relations, causal, counterfactual, modal, and metaphysical. Badorf, drawing on Fowler's work, notes that it is possible for God to have a counterfactual dependence on his parts without his having this causal, modal, or metaphysical dependence on them. And he gives this uh, helpful example when he talk, talking about Socrates and his singleton set, uh, a singleton set um, just being a set that has one member, namely Socrates. Uh, Badorf says, uh, in every possible world wherein Socrates exists, he exists with his singleton set, and he likewise could not exist without a singleton set. Since a singleton set exists in every possible world where Socrates does, Socrates does not exist without a singleton set. The set could also not exist without Socrates to be its member. In this case, I think it is apparent that Socrates is more fundamental than his singleton. Uh, so in this example, Socrates' singleton depends on Socrates, but in such a way that the dependence is not reciprocal. Should Socrates fail to exist, then so would the singleton. But at the same time, the singleton, Socrates, is dependent on Socrates himself, in such a way that Socrates does not in turn depend on the singleton. Now, the same sort of dependence can be said to exist between God and his properties, they point out. According to Badorf, one might think that properties imply that God is not fundamental because of a kind of counterfactual dependence. Since they are necessary to God, if any of God's properties did not exist, then neither would God. However, it is also true that if God did not exist, then neither would any of God's properties and that comes from Badorf's paper, uh, Simplicity, Aseity, and Sovereignty in Sophia. Very helpful paper. Yeah, as a pause for a second here. So so Matthew listens to the show quite often, so he's going to love two things. One, that you said his, <laughs> his last name properly. Uh, and, and then two, um, like you're just, you're just talking to him. So he's just, hopefully he's just stro stroking his ego right now. He's going to love this, I hope. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, so anyway, sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. No worries, no worries. But yeah, so such a counter, such a, uh, so this is this type of relationship, the way that, you know, God and his property is going to rely on one another, but neither could, could ever exist without the others. That's what this is. This is a type of counterfactual dependence. Now, God can be dependent on his properties in this way, and this poses no problem to his aseity. Uh, and the reason for this is because this counterfactual dependence relation is not the sort of dependence relation that typically is in view for most definitions and uh, defenses of aseity. 
So mm-hmm. on this view, while God is counterfactually dependent on his properties, he is still the ground for his properties. In the same way that Socrates would be the ground for his singleton set, God would be the ground for his properties. So the only way the doctrine of aseity fails really on this is if God's properties in turn ground God himself. Now, what's particularly helpful here is a way of understanding properties that Badworth borrows from E.J. Lowe and John Heil, who seem to borrow this idea from D.M. Armstrong. Now, Badworth calls this an identity view of properties, and he contrasts it to an explanation view of properties. Uh, Badworth talks about tropes, but you can really, with the way he talks about it, and, and going back to Armstrong's work, you can interchange tropes or properties here. By saying properties, I am not making any necessary metaphysical commitments by saying this. Right. Okay. So just some property talk. That's right. All. Right. Yeah. Okay. So on the explanation view, properties explain uh, the characteristics of a substance. They're like these attachable things that, that, that just are the explanation and basis for these characteristics. But on the identity view, properties are just identical to the ways that substances are. Uh, here's an example from Badorf. On the explanation view, a brick is red because of its redness property. The property explains the characteristic of the brick. But on the identity view, a brick is red because its redness property and the state of affairs of the bricks being red are just identical. Now, the immediate question that's going to arise here is, so what's the difference between a property and a state of affairs on this view? If the property is just identical to the state of the state of affairs, what's the difference? Right. Yeah. Now, Armstrong is really helpful here. Lowe and Heil don't do this as much, but Armstrong, if we go out to Armstrong, he does. He parses out. But on this view, a property would not be a state of affairs, but rather it would be a state of affairs type. A state of affairs type, according to Armstrong, is like this. If particular A has the property universal F, then the state of affairs is A's being F. But the property is best thought of as blanks being F. The property is just a gutted state of affairs. It is everything that is left in the state of affairs after the particular particulars involved in the state of affairs have been abstracted away in thought. So it is a state of affairs type, the constituent that is common to all states of affairs, which contain that property. Now, applied to God, for example, God's property of omnipotence is not something that explains a particular characteristic of God. That would deny God's aseity on this. Rather, God's omnipotence on this view is just one of the ways that God is. And this way that he is, is grounded in him and not vice versa. So God's not dependent Mm -hmm. on this way. Right. Um, Now, some may be wondering what the point of all this property talk and some of this more in-depth metaphysics is. Uh, The point is that there is just at least one plausible way that one could claim that God exists, I say, and is not absolutely simple. Um, God would still depend on his properties in this counterfactual sense. However, this isn't a problem since his properties, the way that the ways that God is, would never exist apart from him because they are ultimately still grounded in him. Now, one of the major advantages here of talking about properties as ways that substances are, and I get this from Armstrong, and I think he's right here, is that it really helps us to desubstantialize properties. We tend to think about properties almost as though they were substances with their own properties, which would then have their own properties and so on ad infinitum. We tend to treat them almost as substances. Thinking and talking about properties as ways that substances are, rather than as things that ground the characteristics of substances, help us to avoid this error of thinking of properties almost like substances. 
So the ways that God is could never exist apart from God himself. And these ways, i.e. his properties, are grounded in God's very being and existence. So insofar that a neoclassical theist would be willing to accept some sort of metaphysical story like this one, then they could consistently claim that God is, I say, and thus transcendent, but he's still not simple. So it's therefore plausibly false that one must affirm, that it's necessary that they affirm the DDS in order to affirm God's aseity. And this same sort of story could also be told by the open theist. So in summary, insofar that the neoclassical theist can consistently claim that God enjoys aseity, and they can consistently affirm that God is transcendent, and thus would have the necessary and sufficient transcendence to create ex nihilo. Um, but as mentioned earlier, Carter and others uh, will tweak the argument to claim that God must be maximally transcendent to create ex nihilo. Um, but as Jordan's already shown, though, this this aspect of the argument just fails as well. So that's right. And I, and I want to add in, too, one thing that I think is we, we've looked at William Lane Craig in particular that makes him unique is that apart from simplicity, Craig, you know, in his particular view of God and time, God is immutable and passable in atemporal sans creation. Mm-hmm. So prior to creation, whatever sense you want to take prior to me, God God is those things. He's not simple, but he is those things. So it's just odd that, you know, that there would be this emphasis that he's still denying transcendence of God. He, he can't create it. No, he's just a creature of the universe when actually sans creation Craig is going to affirm three of those four attributes that Carter is going to insist on. So it's this is right. particularly odd. Yeah. This, this whole so, so I want to see if I can like make sure I'm following along here. So so if it's just simply like, well, can you affirm creation ex nihilo if you're a neoclassical theist? You can go, well, yeah. What is the doctrine of creation ex nihilo? Well, creation ex nihilo says that prior to the existence of the universe, there's God and God alone. And, and then subsequently, in whichever way you want to try to cash that out, Subsequently, there's God with all this stuff, and he didn't create this stuff from pre-existing matter. Well, on Craig's model, you've got God all alone. There's this timeless state of affairs, uh, and then God exists with a universe. He exists with a bunch of cosmic stuff. Okay, bada bing, bada boom, creation ex nihilo. Um, but but you know, but Carter's like, well, but there's not the real transcendence that has the simplicity stuff here, and you've got all these kind of problems. And they're like, well, look, um, all these problems that you're pointing out for simplicity, they don't they don't really work. And in fact, Al-Ghazali kind of pointed that out like a really, really long time ago. So this is not news to anybody that these arguments don't work. But we don't care about Al-Ghazali because he's not in our Christian tradition. So we only care about like our favorite dead people you know, in, in our own religious tradition. Um, so no, no, no. Uh, so anyway, uh, jokes aside. So so Jordan, t- tell me about open theism. Like uh, you guys want to say open theism is consistent with uh, with this view. But I, I mean, again, like, but God's a creature in open theism. How could that how could that be? Explain you to know, me. first, asking a, a reformed classical theist to defend o- open theism is pretty cruel and unusual <laughs> punishment. I've, I've got to to say, but I, I do want to you know pick on my favorite dead people. You know, you look for transcendence, like you've mentioned, mm-hmm. and you don't see this term really happening. So, trying to determine what does transcendence mean is is isn't as simple as like, oh, let me just turn the page, you know, three hundred and seventy six in Turretin, and there it is. It's just not there. Yep. So, you've got to do some model building even there. So the as a reminder, the, the point of the, the paper we've been doing isn't to take a position on simplicity. It's just to show that this argument fails. So, And that shouldn't be problematic to show bad arguments. I mean, I could say that classical theism is true because all relational theists deny that Torchies is the best taco place. I mean, mm-hmm. I could say that. 
I mean, it's true that Torch is the best taco place, and I think classical theism is true, but that argument obviously doesn't work. So what we're trying to do here is just show, look, yeah, the argument's bad, so let's use better arguments. So open theism, I mean, if I'm going to have to defend them, I'm going to use the OG Richard Swinburne. So, yeah. and I'll keep this short and sweet since, you know, we've cashed out neoclassical theism and I think open theism's like mirrors it to a significant state. So I think the biggest thing, number one, is Swinburne clearly, explicitly affirms and defends creation ex nihilo. The same way that Carter defines it, he defines it and he defends it. So if we're going to do that, you've got to show where it is that they, they end up actually denying it. So I think Carter needs a more nuanced reason for open theism's inability to affirm the things like divine transcendence that his argument's completely missing. Because Swinburne, if you read his stuff, like Coherence of Theism, he works out like, here's how I can have a model of transcendence. Here's how I can have a robust model of God being worthy of worship. And he says, this works. And unless Carter provides a legitimate argument to the contrary, I have no choice but to say, dude, like, Show show me where he goes wrong. Show me where that's a problem. Because he clearly explicitly affirms creation ex nihilo. So if you want to say he can't affirm it, then you've got to do some work. You can't just make the claim and say, look, this is red meat to my to my followers and my crowd. Everybody claps, sends you money to buy a book. That, that's just not how it works. You've got to actually show where things are wrong. And I know I get in a lot of hot water because I do that in my tribes. They're like, hey, no, you, you got to toe the party line, whatever. I, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I want to fo- Where's the, What's truth? And I, I think if you want to do good metaphysics, you got to do philosophy, you got to do theology, you got to be honest, transparent, kind, charitable, and say, look, I think this is what you're saying, and I think this is wrong. But Carter just doesn't do that. And clearly, Swinburne, an open theist, says, yes, I affirm creation ex nihilo. Yeah, yeah, because you get Swinburne. Well, I can't, since I got this cold, I can't quite do the Swinburne accent, but he's like, yes, well, a universe is, you know, and he's like, so like a universe is this like collection of contingent substances that are spatio-temporally and causally related. Well, you've got God all alone, and then God snaps his fingers and he creates a bunch of contingent beings that are spatially, temporally, and causally related. Now, I know like Brian Davies might be like, well, but yeah, Swinburne's view, like God, uh, like exists alongside the universe. But then, uh, you know, a good uh, reformed theologian and philosopher, Paul Helm, is going to come along and go, what on earth could that mean? What does it mean for God to be like, exist alongside? God doesn't have sides. Like, he's, in, he's a non-physical being. Like, how could he have sides to exist alongside the universe? What is that? What is that? So, so yeah, it'd be nice if we could drop some metaphors and do some hardcore metaphysics like what you guys are up to here. Um, but, you know, but hardcore metaphysics, that's, that's not reading the Bible. So... You guys, I don't know. We're on shaky ground here. We're on shaky ground here. It's, it's also interesting too to mention on the, on the Swinburne issue. You know, Carter when he describes Swinburne, he doesn't. It's funny. He actually can he he categorizes Swinburne as a theistic personalist, following Brian Davies in his philosophy religion intro. Mm-hmm. But then he turns around. And he talk, says, and this this is near a quote, but I remember this clearly. He says. Now, there's also open theism, which is a little less radical than theistic personalism. And I just don't. <laughs> and again, I don't know what you mean by theistic personalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I'm very confused. I'm like, but Swinburne is an open theist. You're, again, it, it gets very muddled and very confusing. And throughout the book, he never really engages these arguments by people like William Lane Craig or Richard Swinburne. One concerning thing that Jordan and I actually discovered, uh, we didn't put this in the paper, but that we discovered is that he provides a particular, uh, he talks about Davis categorizing Swinburne as this, and then he quotes Swinburne saying these things. 
But if you go to the Davies text, the exact same citation is right there on the same page as the Davies citation that Carter pulls. Mm-hmm. So even then, it just seems unclear. Did he did he actually go and get this from Swinburne himself, or is this just pulled from? And I'm not speculating saying Carter. It's this sure. honestly saying that it's just it's just unclear, spe- yeah. especially in light of there's no further engagement with people like Swinburne or Craig or others after that. Yeah. Let me defend Davies definition of theistic personalism for a second. So uh, theistic personalism is any view that says God is the property of personhood, you know? Okay, cool. Well, according to Thomas Marshler, um, everyone in the entire classical tradition uh, insisted that that was a perfection that we had to predicate of God. Uh, And I can provide you a bunch of quotes from Augustine and Boethius and Peter Lombard and Aquinas all saying, yep, that's right. To be a person is to be God. It's like it's, it's identical to a substance. So therefore, the entire classical tradition is our theistic personalists. Um, so there we go. Uh, great defense of theistic personalism uh, on this. So this is the popcorn round where guests don't know the questions ahead of time. The questions can be random and the answer is more ridiculous. You guys have to answer these questions as fast as you can. Faster than one can say, pop, pop. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay, Jordan, this first one is for you. Why are Baptists always wrestling? Like, like every time I listen to your show, you know, or like I'm listening to some Baptists preach, you know, like, everyone's always talking about like wrestling with things. Like, a, like a, what's up with that? What's what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention? And, you know, when I, I, I heard through the grapevine, you talking trash about me about this. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I don't say that. What are you talking about? And then mid-interview the next day i hear myself saying it and i'm like you've got to be kidding me i have have no idea why this term is used it's you know if i want to be really pious and and theological i'd say well it's just it's our posture of wrestling with scripture like jacob wrestled with the angel in genesis Mm -hmm. uh but i i don't have a good answer (laughs) i have no idea I mean, it would be really cool if you could play the Jacob card, be like, you know, and, and just like Jacob, like, you know, but like, I, I want you to be moved by God, you know, I, I want you to walk away from that fight with God, you know, and, 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 but yeah. Mm, okay. Andrew, this next one's for you. What is a worship song at church that you would prefer to never hear again? Oh, man. Um, Mary, did you know? Mm, mm. Since it, since it is the Christmas season, yeah, it is season. the Christmas season. There are a lot of Christmas songs that I would prefer to never hear again. Because um, I worked at, I worked in a bookstore for a while, and and as soon as like the day after Thanksgiving, all the Christmas songs would go on, and those would be on nonstop until we would get to um, like the day after New Year's, like it was done. Yeah, so just oh gosh, yeah. So Christmas songs in general kill me. But Mary, did you know that one? That one really gets to you. It does. It, it doesn't get me as bad as the little drummer boy, which I hear played in stores and stuff more often. But I don't ever hear that one sung as a worship song in church. That's why I didn't say it. Um, <laughs> some, someone yeah. on Twitter said the other day that I said, "Imagine you're Mary and Joseph. You just had this baby. It's just stopped crying. You've gotten it down for a nap, and this arrogant teenage boy walks up and says, "You know what this baby needs? A drum solo." <laughs> 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 so, that would uh, imagine, I think that, imagine oh, how annoyed man. Mary and Joseph would have been at that. Because <laughs> I I remember like my parents like when I was a kid like you know like some some friend of my parents would give me 
like some toy like like instruments or something and like maybe like a toy drum set and you just see the look on my parents faces like their gritted teeth going thank you so much for giving my child that gift you know and like so i could just imagine joseph and mary being like i just put this baby down for a nap why are you my, my, w- what are you doing with these drums up here my dislike of the little drummer boy it actually even goes beyond the song i actually never even liked that movie as a kid that claymation uh-huh. uh not claymation the movie. I, I didn't like it as a kid either it was it was horribly boring so just hating Christmas, hating Christmas. It's a war, man. <laughs> so, okay, so next popcorn question. This one's for both of you. Uh, what is a band or a song that you're really into at the moment? Man, what did I just... I, let me open my Spotify and I can tell you which song mm-hmm. I just liked. Um, there you go. What is this? Where is it? Okay, well... You know, I'll tell you what. I've been really into Silverstein lately. I, I can't tell you why. I, I listen to mm-hmm. them, I feel like, in high school. But suddenly, they've put out some new music, and I've really been enjoying it. So I've been jamming to it. Oh, I didn't know they put out something new recently. Oh, yeah. they got a whole new album and a couple a couple uh, singles out there, too. So give them a listen if mm-hmm. you haven't in a while. I guess, I, again, yeah, I wouldn't have heard them since high school. So I've yeah, I've completely yeah, had a loop on this. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. Andrew, Andrew, you're up. Yeah, so it's not a recent one, but a few years back before he died, uh, B.B. King and Eric Clapton did an album together called Riding with the King, and on there they have this cover of Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave, Mm. and it's really excellent, very enjoyable. And then the other song I'm really into is, uh, it's not one that I'm into it per se, but I love to torture my wife with it. It's it's a Christmas song called Backdoor Santa by B.B. King. It's a... If you've never listened to it, you should go listen to it and uh, give it a listen. It'll it'll make you chuckle. If I remember correctly, I think B.B. King's last performance was in Indiana at the Indie Blues and Jazz Festival. Oh, that's cool. So I often tell Emma like uh, of all these fun like Indiana facts because she's always like saying like Italy invented everything and I'm like well Indiana is the last stop for a lot of people so Elvis Presley and that was his last last performance before he died BB uh, King ooh okay James Brown ooh you know last place before you die so uh, I don't think I play become a, a famous musician <laughs> yeah yeah don't 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 go to Indy you know like ooh. Uh, it's funny so, uh, people people hate Mississippi all the time and I'm a proud Mississippian both BB King and Elvis hail from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. They were born. Mm-hmm. I actually grew up 30 minutes away from Elvis Presley's birth of uh, the house he grew up in as a child. Okay, nice. Very nice. I'll have to tell my mom that she's a huge Elvis fan. So, Andrew, this next popcorn question is for you. Who is your favorite comedian? Man, uh, probably Mitch Hedberg. Uh, rest, may he rest in peace. I'm, I'm a huge fan of his little one-liners and, and quips. Uh, I like Jim Gaffigan and Kevin Hart a lot as well. But probably Mitch Hedberg is my favorite. There we go. All right, this one's for either of you. This is our final popcorn question. What is something that is really popular right now, but in five years, everyone will look back on and be embarrassed by? Hating on analytic theology. <laughs> not not even only. close. Yeah, that's. there's no chance. Um, man, I don't know. What? I get myself in trouble if I say that. <laughs> Uh, I know because when I was thinking it. about this one too, I was like, I wouldn't say that on air. I wouldn't say this one on air either. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not up in the cool Taylor Swift. I don't know. I'm not cool in the popular stuff. I don't. I go read books and I hang out with my family and I'm like, I don't know what's cool. Instagram will Instagram be dead in five years because TikTok killed it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah, because you can't say Taylor Swift. I mean, like. 
Tay Tay's like she's she's eternal. Like I mean that's that's that she's not going anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, maybe maybe Instagram. I would like to think people would look back and go, why did I take so many pictures of my food? What was I thinking there? You know. But, <laughs> I think we all think that already. Like the, well, I mean, yeah. Who takes pictures of food on Instagram now? This is a and here and here's a here's a thirty year period where people were really obsessed with taking pictures of what they were eating. <laughs> These were the food years of they're, uh, photography. They're unsure why, but this is what they did. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you're probably right. TikTok will probably kill something, and then something will come along and replace that. But yeah, well, Andrew Jordan, thank you guys so much for being on the show today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks for having us. Absolutely, it was, it was a pleasure. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for an episode on Matthew Baird's critique of divine passability. 